Well, first of all, any, any questions about what we've talked about so far? Anybody feeling overloaded? That's good. Oh, Ben has. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, questions, okay. Actually, I just had a question of the degree to which we might practice mindful awareness in day-to-day life. Um, because I found personally that I, I kind of get a little bit burned out. Mm-hmm. When, it, when it comes to the point to actually sit, it's sort of like, uh, well, you know, I've been attempting this all this, you know, 24 hours a day, so it doesn't seem so. I, I, I fail to draw a distinct line between sitting practice and day-to-day life. So I just wonder your, your take on the degree to which we should attempt mindfulness uh, sort of all the time versus sitting. Okay, you asked me about the degree to which we should attempt mindfulness all the time. Uh, uh, you, you should set as your goal to be mindful 24 hours a day. <laughs> but before stating that question, you expressed something that sounded like a bit of a problem with that. If you've been trying to be mindful all day long, and then you sit down to meditate, uh, how did you describe it? Just being burned out or feeling like uh, you know, being stretched thin. Maybe burned out and stretched thin. Um, okay, I think we should... I, I, I think we would need to look at how you're going about practicing mindfulness during the day. Because it really, it shouldn't, shouldn't feel like that. Um, so maybe it would be better if you and I talked one-on-one about uh, how you're practicing. The, the thing is that you develop the, the power of your mindful awareness and the, and the habit of mindfulness when sitting, and then you have to bring that into your daily life. And usually the challenge is forgetting. It's, it exactly parallels the process that you go through in learning to meditate. You say, I'm going to be mindful all the time, and then you forget to be. <laughs> and then it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and this is the first time you thought about being mindful since uh, 7 o'clock in the morning. And it goes through the same thing. You, you know, you forget. Uh, you learn to remember more often, and so forth. But mindful awareness, properly practiced, uh, it is. It is also like meditation. In while you're being mindful, that should actually be enjoyable. Uh, satisfying. Uh, And the challenge is remembering to be mindful or being fully mindful, but that too isn't a matter of exerting an effort that is is tiresome so much as it is just having the the recollection and, uh, uh, and exercising the intention. So um, and I think, you know, my experience, I think the common experience is that as you begin to be more mindful more often throughout your daily life, uh, 
you really enjoy it. You, you, you it's you're, you're disappointed when it's not there. You, you're really aware of it when you feel tired and your mind just isn't uh, up up to it, and it becomes kind of addictive. So, um, yeah, let's 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 talk about that you and I to see why you're you're finding it to be uh, tiresome. But for for everyone's benefit, you know, all of these things that you're doing in meditation. They're just practice for real life, right? <laughs> uh, they're they're a very specialized uh, circumstance in which to develop the abilities, practice the abilities. They're also a uh, highly specialized environment in which to explore the nature of your mind. But what you really want to do. Is, is to be able to carry out that exploration in the noisy, busy uh, world of uh, daily interactions as well and to enjoy the benefit of that. And when I say being mindful 24 hours a day, uh, that, that is within the realm of possibility. Uh, you can uh, know that you're in deep sleep when you're in deep sleep. There's nothing to remember about it, but you can know you're in deep sleep. And uh, you can uh, know that you're dreaming when you're dreaming, which is what is commonly called lucid dreaming, but I would say it's just being mindful when you're dreaming. <laughs> so, um, and once you start enjoying the benefits of mindfulness, you, you want to have that kind of mindfulness. It's that's uh, probably why you got into this in the first place. So, so thanks, Ben, for bringing that up. Uh, I believe uh, Nathan had... I forgot. You forgot what it was. Okay, that's, that's it. Anyone else have any questions? What we talked about? Yes. Piggyback on what you're saying then, um, to be mindful... It's not necessarily, you don't have to perceive your mindful during the day. You can look back on it and be mindful of the day. Yes. Um, that's right. He, uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember your name. Ron. Ron. Yeah, Ron suggested that uh, you can also be mindful reflectively or retrospectively. You can look back on your day and be mindful. As a matter of fact, that is a powerful tool for learning to be uh, more mindful in, uh, in your daily life. If once a day, and a really good time for that is uh, uh, at the same time that you meditate, maybe just before you meditate or just after, is to take a period uh, uh, just to reflect on your mindfulness in the last 24 hours. And I often suggest that in beginning to learn to be mindfully self-aware during daily activities, uh, pick something that you would really, where, where you feel like it would really benefit you, that you really need to have more mindfulness. And uh, an example would be that if you're prone to irritability and anger, that you make it your goal to start out, just to give you, just to give you sort of a, a target and a focus for your practice of mindfulness, is to try to be uh, mindfully self-aware of what's, what's going on in the present moment 
whenever you're in a circumstance where uh, irritation and anger arise. And at first, of course, you'll always forget to do that. But this daily reflection helps you to do that because once a day you reflect and you remember, well, oh yeah, and you, uh, you acknowledge that uh, you, you weren't mindful at the time, you see how you, what, you, what you could have been mindful of, how you could have been mindful at, at that time. And it, it has kind of an imprint. And so doing that is then going to make it more likely that you'll remember to be mindful in the future. And in my experience, what happens is that you go from maybe not being mindful at all to only being mindful reflectively when you in this period of reflection, then to beginning to remember that uh, you weren't mindful shortly after the event happened, to having the uh, awareness that you intend to be mindful actually come up during the event. Uh, and so it progressively just becomes easier and easier to actually be mindful in the circumstances that you've chosen. But you can extend beyond that and just, uh, if you reflect during the day when, when you were particularly mindful and feel good about it, you know, the positive reinforcement is very important. So reflect on, make sure that you always remember your successes and give yourself a good pat on the back for those successes because that makes them more likely in the future. But then also recollect those times when you weren't particularly mindful. And um, the reflection, it's important the form the reflection takes. It's not, ah, I should, you know, what happened to me? It's, it's not that kind of thing. Rather, it's uh, it's a little more objective and detached, almost like you're examining something that uh, a behavior that was somebody else's rather than your own. So you just you're able to just see how that particular thing unfolded and see the difference that mindfulness would have made, see the consequences that came out of it, see the unwholesome tendencies that were driving your reaction. Just be aware of them. Just bring them out in the open, have a look at them, acknowledge them that, oh yeah, there was uh, a desire there that made me react in this way, and I said that, and oh yeah, that's the way I felt afterwards, or that's the effect it had on somebody else. Just let that come into awareness. That's a kind of feedback that the part of your mind that generates these responses is conditioned to generate those responses due to past experiences. And it hasn't been getting the feedback that this isn't really serving you, that this isn't really working. So when you practice this kind of reflection, or if you practice in the moment mindfulness, either one, what you're doing is you're shining the light of conscious awareness on a kind of situation that's been going on for a long time. And you're allowing the parts of your mind that have been driving that to have a rare, clear look at the effect they're really producing and uh, its, its desirability. Because the part of your mind that makes you react with irritation learned to do that and continues to do that because According to its programming, 
this is good for you. And it'll keep on doing that until it gets the feedback. And so it becomes aware that, hey, this isn't good. <laughs> and then it will change. So that's, that's what we want to do with this mindful awareness, is illuminate the reality that's taking place with conscious awareness in such a way that those unconscious processes that have been driving it get the feedback as to what's really going on. Yes? Remember my question, um, going back to the topic of dullness. Um, you're saying if we if we train train our minds enough, what what is the experience the meditator's experience of running into dullness? Does he meet it at he's able to meet it quickly enough that it doesn't permeate or how how, how does he relate to it? Yes, uh, the, uh, as a meditator becomes more experienced with dullness, notices its onset quicker, and of course because of his experience is able to gauge an appropriate uh, antidote to bring himself out of it. And depending on how experienced he is, if he's really put in the time working through training the mind not to sink into dullness, then usually that's all it takes. It's, it's a bit of correction and... Uh, the problem, it's not going to come back again right away the way it does for a less experienced meditator. The exceptions to that, physical illness, uh, lack of sleep, uh, exhaustion due to things. Even the most skilled meditator, most skilled in dealing with dullness, can be in a physiological state where, you know, it's going to be strong and it's going to be difficult to deal with. Um, the other thing is that as you become more experienced in your meditation, you can also become aware of very subtle dullness after the fact. The more subtler forms of dullness can be sustained. And so you can sit for an hour in a state of subtle dullness and uh, not realize it until you get up and realize that you have kind of a foggy brain. And if you get up from your meditation and have that experience, then uh, two things. One, you know you're in dullness, and two, you might be willing to agree with the uh, Tibetan and North Indian masters who teach that uh, that sitting in sustained dullness is very bad for you. Okay, what I would like to do, if there's no further questions about what you've already done, uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about the progressive development of the practice. Now, is everybody really clear on the second stage and the third stage and the difference between them from, from the reading and from the talking that we've done? Anybody that's not? Because what I'd like to talk about is the progression uh, from the third stage to the fourth stage. Okay, good. Um, the fourth stage. This is this is where you have uninterrupted continuity of awareness of your chosen object. That doesn't mean it's always in the center of your attention. Sometimes you are thinking some thought, but you haven't lost the awareness of. of 
the breath. You still, some, some part of your awareness is still tracking the beginning and the middle and the end of the end breath and the pause and the beginning and the middle and the end of the out breath and you haven't lost awareness of it. Even though it's maybe happening over here in the, in the periphery of your awareness while you are really thinking a thought, some other thought. But to have it continuously in your awareness, to have that degree of stability is extremely unusual in terms of the normal uh, behavior of the human mind. So when you reach the fourth stage, you are definitely no longer a beginning meditator. You now have, uh, you have an ability to sustain attention stably in a way that is comparatively rare. And uh, we would say at this point that you, you are, are truly a meditator on the path to becoming uh, quite skilled. Uh, William James, who is considered to be the father of Western psychology uh, in a classic work that he wrote around the turn of the century, at a time in which he was, of course, unaware of the Eastern meditation traditions, made the statement that it was impossible for the human mind to entertain the same object for more than uh, 15 or 20 seconds at a time. <laughs> and he was, uh, he was a very uh, intelligent, knowledgeable, and experienced person. And I, I think that uh, you can see that he was reflecting what is the experience of somebody who hasn't achieved a certain degree of uh, success in this kind of mental training. And you may yourself, in your meditation practice, at a stage where um, it may seem to you that it's impossible to <laughs> do that. Uh, hopefully not. I mean, what I really hope is that you, if you haven't already, you very quickly discover that uh, not 15 seconds, but, but 3 minutes, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes is, is not that difficult. And even at some point, 45 minutes, an hour is uh, is not that difficult either, but when you do have that experience of uninterrupted or relatively uninterrupted uh, continuity of attention, this is a very significant achievement, and this is what we call the the fourth stage in this process. Um, as to how you progress from the third stage to the fourth stage. In the third stage, your periods of awareness where you haven't lost the meditation object are becoming longer. And what's happening in that is sometimes the meditation object is actually at the center point, is actually the focus of your awareness uh, amidst all of the other thoughts and things that are happening. Other times, something has displaced it but it's still there. The process of uh, the process of remaining continuously aware is dependent upon realizing as soon as it's having this introspective awareness that allows you to recognize in time that you are losing this awareness of the meditation object, that the breath is no longer there. You start to think a thought 
and the awareness of the breath is no longer there. But then you have that realization, and so you let go of the thought. You don't try to suppress it or stop it, although very often it just kind of disappears by itself. But what you do is reestablish, reestablish awareness of the breath once again. What's happening in the third stage is that you are forgetting. Some other thought, sound, bodily pain, distraction comes along that occupies your attention for sufficiently thoroughly and for sufficiently long, uh, and how long that is and how thorough that is varies a lot. But when, when it's occupied your attention sufficiently well, what's going to happen is you are going to forget the meditation object. But in this stage, you're going to realize that pretty quickly. And of course, then, uh, with that realization, is the tendency for the mind to spontaneously go back to the sensations of the breath is going to be, it's in the process of becoming more and more well-established and happening automatically. But you have the opportunity not to just rush back to the meditation object, but examine the nature of the distraction that has succeeded in carrying you away. Now, some of you, maybe all of you, have already had some of that experience. It comes very quickly. Uh, Earlier, I asked you what were the two, if we were to try to divide all of the different kinds of things that could be objects of conscious awareness into two categories, uh, we recognized that we could divide them up into mental objects and sensations. Of those two categories, what is most likely to draw your attention away uh, such that you forget what you're doing? Mental objects, right? As a matter of fact, in terms of the constant ongoing stuff in your mind, all of which has the potential to draw your attention away, what is most of it? It's mental objects, right? Not only that, um, have you, has, has anyone looked closely at what happens when a sound or a sensation serves as a distraction, what the sequence of events is? I'll bet you have. Oh, yes. Oh, well, you, I mean, it's like if you hear the screech of a screech outside and a crash, you know, immediately you, you put the story together that, you know, the sounds could have come from different angles, but, you know, the cars crashed and yeah. you get a narrative and, a, and an image. Right. That's right. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose if somebody started out a jackhammer outside the window, it could draw our attention away on a purely sensorial level. But most of the time, there's a sensation followed by a mental object, and it's really and that mental object may trigger a thought, and so forth. So once again, it's really the mental objects that have the power to draw us away and make us forget. So with that bit of awareness, when we realize that that what we're 
the distractions that we're most vulnerable to, that are most likely to cause us to forget what we're doing, are mental mental objects. So we can reflect for a moment and say, okay, what are the different things that, different kinds of mental objects that uh, we're commonly experiencing? Thoughts. Now, what is a thought? How does it manifest? A voice in the head? Um, no. No? Just a awareness of some concept from the past mm-hmm. that, for whatever reason, has captured your attention. Um, and... Okay, and what form and that? How does that concept present itself? Usually, a situation, I would think. Like an image. image yeah. You have a mental image. Yeah. Yeah. So very often, your thoughts are mental images. Other times, they are verbal narratives. There's a little voice that's analyzing, talking, chatting away. So uh, a lot of the things that we call thoughts are. Uh, either mental images. I mean, there, there are a lot of subtle forms of thinking as well. And I'm not trying to say that I'm encompassing the whole thing. But uh, if we just look at the most common and obvious way that thoughts manifest, it's that inner talk and various images that arise. Uh, memories, if, if you have a, a memory, they will often arise as some sort of uh, image or uh, it could be a memory of a, of a sensation, but it's very often a kind of image of, of yourself in that situation or something that you saw and so forth. Planning, planning can take the form of talking your way through a project, or sometimes it can take the form of a, uh, an image or a set of images that unfolds. Or sometimes you might have a, the, uh, a sort of experience of the body doing something. Um, you might notice that if you, if the thought that arises is, "Oh, I'm supposed to call William at two o'clock," then the thought might take the form of you uh, sort of having this mental experience of taking out your phone and, you know dialing the number and putting it to your ear. It takes different forms, but uh, for convenience, you can think of them as as being uh, a form of image. So there's image and talk. So then there's one other kind of mental object that tends to be very strong that we would call uh, emotions, The feeling of restlessness, that's an emotion, or impatience. You know, the, the feeling that you have, uh, when's he going to ring the bell? That's an emotion. And it may be accompanied by thoughts, like, when's he going to ring the bell? But it starts out as a feeling. <laughs> and it sort of fills you up. So it's a mental object, and that's a good example of a mental object that will take your attention away from the, from the breath. Okay, so we sense objects trigger mental objects and mental objects uh, of different kinds unfold and that's what we're really vulnerable to. 
And so when you're in this process and you find that you've, something has captured your attention to the extent that you have, even if only momentarily, forgotten what you were doing, it's worthwhile to just have a look, make a mental note of what that was, to become familiar with the kinds of things that are pulling your uh, attention around. I liken this to if you found yourself, you've just been abducted, you've just been kidnapped, it's worth looking at your kidnapper in the face so the next time you can run the other way, right? Uh, and you can you can just see what what kind of uh, a thought was this, and almost instantly you'll recognize where it fits into your uh, overall scheme of things in in your life. Is it a thought that's a, that is rooted in what we would call desires of the sense realm, the world that we live in? Is it a thought that has to do with some way that we're going to make ourselves happy or avoid some suffering? I mean, a lot of our planning is that. Uh, right? So you can, you can recognize that many of the thoughts that you have are going to be of this type. And what will come from that is the recognition that well, what my mind is vulnerable to, what is occupying my attention, not only in meditation, but probably most of the time, are all these thoughts that keep coming up about these different things that I'm going to do or problems I'm going to solve or so on and so forth so that I can be happy. Okay. Uh, the other thing that you will notice is that... Um, uh, you will have thoughts that have to do with worry. A thought will come up and you'll say, oh, that's worry again. Uh, there will be thoughts that have to do with uh, anger, ill will, animosity, impatience, your dissatisfaction with things, uh, partners, family, uh, Co-workers, uh, the you know whatever it is, we have all kinds of things in the world that produce in us a sense of uh, annoyance, dissatisfaction, basically aversion or ill will in some form or another. And so you can see that some of your thoughts are rooted in that, and that's a common. If you've had an argument with somebody, that's what's going to come up in your meditation, isn't it? You're going to keep having those thoughts of well. You know, I should have said, you know, or how dare he, or things like that. So, this is another large and easily recognized category of, uh, of thoughts, which has a root in emotion, too. Desire and anger. Uh, worry has a root in a kind of... Uh, uh, either remorse or regret, uh, fear, oh, I shouldn't have done that. What if the IRS checks with my uh, <laughs> whatever, you know, that sort of thing. Um, 
then there's two other major categories uh, of things that can come up as distractions, and uh, one is uh, one is thoughts of, of uh, doubt. You know, should I be doing this? Is this the right thing to do? Maybe I'm not suited to this. Maybe this is the wrong method. I should be doing something else. So thoughts to, to do with doubt of various kinds, doubt of yourself. And then another kind of thought that you might have is one that is, uh, uh, is just you're experiencing a resistance to, uh, to what you're doing. Right? Uh, maybe I should, uh, instead, of, instead of meditating, maybe I should go and take care of this other more important thing. So... Uh, Resistance is a good name for it. For, so there are actually these major categories of thoughts you have that will appear either in a verbal form or some kind of imagery, the imagery of you doing something different or, or what, whatever it is. So you can readily, without doing a lot of analysis, just by paying attention, you can come to know what is going on in your mind. What kinds of things are trying to move in and take over your attention. What kinds of things are trying to usurp this, uh, this calm and this peacefulness that you're enjoying? What kinds of things are, are demanding attention and occupying this place in your life? And with that recognition, you can automatically comes a kind of intention not to allow yourself to be vulnerable to that, to the same degree. So if you, if you pay attention to your abductor, then you automatically become more uh, wary of your abductor in the future, taking away a lot of your abductor's ability to steal you away again. So applying a bit of awareness to what's happening in the process of, of distraction. Now, when you're having a lot of mind wandering, that doesn't really help. Because when you realize your mind has wandered, you're three, six, 10, 18 steps removed from what originally took you away. So don't bother with that. But when you're in that place of, you're pretty sure that, that what's right in front of you right now as you come into this present moment awareness, is what took you away. Have a look at it. Because just have that mindful awareness of this, this is what has taken me away. And that is going to have the effect over time that instead of discovering that you have been captured by this, you're going to see it coming and you're going to let it come, let it be, let it go, while you don't lose your awareness of the meditation object. It may take the form that it comes and where it's going to be is right in the center of your awareness, but you're not letting it, you're not allowing yourself to lose that. And so at some point you'll realize what's happened and you can bring your focus back to the meditation object. This is really what all the practice in the fourth stage is about. So I said that we could conveniently designate everything else that comes up, sensations and mental objects, other than 
what your chosen meditation object is, we can designate them as distractions. Okay? And so now we can take distractions and conveniently divide them into uh, subtle distractions which have the uh, uh, which remain in the background or the periphery of the awareness and allow us to keep the meditation object at the central focus. And we can see that sometimes a subtle distraction, distraction manages to displace the meditation object and when that happens we'll call it a gross distraction. It hasn't made us forget it yet. but that, And so it's still a distraction. Uh, but it's now a gross distraction and it's, it's there occupying the central focus and the meditation object is off to the side. So we're trying to move then from the third stage where we keep forgetting the meditation object periodically to the fourth stage where we never lose it. And then in the fourth stage we realize it still sometimes slips into the background and now our task is just to bring, bring it back into the foreground whenever that happens. So we've reached the stage of uninterrupted continuity of awareness and now we're further refining the stability of our attention by being able to keep coming back to the meditation object, keeping it in the center of the awareness, while everything else stays where it belongs in the periphery. And this, of course, whether it happens for a short period of time in the third stage or as the characteristic of your entire meditation in the fourth stage, it is that inner landscape of the mind that I talked about. And if I keep my eyes focused here, I can be aware of the rest of the room, and if anybody get up, gets up and goes away or a new person walks in, I still know it. Even I don't have to shift my eyes up to the door to see the new person has come in, or over to this side of the room to see that somebody gets up and walks out. Right? I can keep my eyes focused there, and my field of vision can take in a lot of information. As a matter of fact, it's a very good way of keeping track of what's going on, uh, just letting it be. Uh, whereas, you know, if, if I looked up to the door, I'd lose if somebody got up on this side, I might not see what happened. So this is, this is the place that you're trying to get to, is this centered, focused awareness. And where it, it becomes easier and easier to stay there. Questions about the methodology of this? Um, what the goal is and the purpose? Yes? Is this, um, oh my gosh, it is, um, oh, I lost it now. Dependent rising? Mm -hmm. Is that where you're headed? Uh, not in the short term, no. <laughs> Uh, but I'll tell you what you will become aware of. You, you, you will, uh, you know, in, in the description I've given you so far, we've already seen uh, some of the process of, of dependent arising, and we can certainly add in the other parts. And for those of you that aren't familiar, dependent arising, what does that mean? It's, it's, uh, it's a description of the way our experiences 
unfold, well, amongst other things. It's a description of the way our experiences unfold. That um, when there is a sense object that interacts with our body and we become aware of it, those three things coming together, the sense object, the sense organ, and, and the consciousness that knows that sensory experience. Okay, so this is what we've been talking about. You're sitting there meditating and there is a sensation. And we talked about the fact that the sensation often triggers a perception, uh, a mental object. You hear a sound and an image arises that corresponds to what you know by past experience to be the source of that sound. That would be an example. Um, or another possibility is that you have a sense experience and you, you don't really get involved in much conceptualization. You just enjoy the experience. You're sitting there and you get a very warm, comfortable feeling that just kind of spreads over your, your chest and your face and it's pleasant. But you have a sensation, and you're consciously aware of it. So this is an event in the unfolding of dependent origination. It's an initiating event. Whether there's an intervening perception or not, both the sensation and if there is a perception, the perception will be accompanied by a quality, a subjective quality that this is pleasant, or this is unpleasant, or this is neutral. If it is something that's pleasant, there will arise within you a feeling of desire. And if it's unpleasant, there will arise in you a feeling of aversion. And whenever a feeling of desire and aversion arises, the mind reacts by creating this duality between uh, the source of the pleasure uh, or the pleasantness or unpleasantness and the experiencer of the pleasantness and unpleasantness and creates a little story and scenario about what you can do about it, which is usually going to lead to some kind of action. Uh, and this is, what's, this is something that is happening all of the time. This is what makes up your life. You have one after another. An experience is pleasant or it's unpleasant. Craving arises in the form of desire and aversion. And your mind uh, fits it into a story about your, uh, yourself. And so you generate thoughts and words and actions in response to that. And of course, that leads to a new experience, which leads to, you know, and it just keeps going and going and going. And that's dependent origination. You can see that. As soon as you start to meditate, as soon as you start to notice that sensations and perceptions are accompanied by feelings of pleasantness and unpleasantness, which produce reactions of desire and aversion. You know, when you feel an ache in your knee, what is your reaction to that? The immediate reaction is, oh, I want that to stop. And what you're dealing with as a meditator is that first comes a feeling and then comes the thought. Uh, about what I can do about it. 
And of course, then comes that other thought that, oh, the instruction is that you're not supposed to move. And so then you have this little dance going back and forth between the part of you that wants to, to move and make the pain go away and the part of you wants to do the practice and stay still. And you may get three or four other voices chime in until you've got a regular chorus going. <laughs> but you can see the process taking place. And if it's a strong pain, you know, it will lead to the formulation of a plan of action and uh, you'll move and then you'll have a whole new sensation. So you can see dependent origination taking place as soon as you start to meditate. If, if you know what you're looking for, you might not, good chance you wouldn't discover it on your own. Good chance you wouldn't, you'd notice the pieces there, but you wouldn't necessarily connect them up. But it's really nice to have the structure uh, of, of how these links work, so that you can recognize it and have that aha experience. Oh, that's what the that's what the Dharma teachers were talking about. So it is there. It's there, right? I wasn't leading to it, but it's always there. You can always find it. And as you go along, it only becomes even more noticeable. Okay. I want us to do some more sitting. Uh, I uh, also want to introduce another meditation practice to you. So what I think I'm going to do right now, let's see, we've got two more hours left. All right, I'm going to give you some instruction in a second meditation practice, walking meditation. Okay? And then we're going to have a break. And then following that break, uh, we'll come back and we'll do a period of sitting, and then we'll do a period of walking. Or maybe we should do it the other way around while the walking meditation instruction is fresh in your mind. We'll do it the other way around. Okay, we'll have a break. And then we'll do a period of formal walking meditation, and then we'll follow that by coming back and uh, doing a sitting meditation. Okay? That'll give us some time afterwards for a little more discussion and some question and answer. Okay, so first, the instruction in walking meditation. Now, we won't lose sight of the basic theme here, is to be fully present in the present moment, relaxed and aware of wake not drawn off into the fantasy land of a past that no longer exists or a future that may never happen or a make-believe someplace else, okay? We're going to stay entirely in the present. Um, this meditation is in some ways easier and more fun, although I will acknowledge that some people don't like it as well as a sitting meditation, at least until I get used to it. Um, it is a lot easier on the body because uh, you don't have the same discomfort that you do with sitting completely still for a long period of time. And it's, it's wonderful if you're doing a lot of sitting to alternate a period of sitting with a period of walking meditation because it helps to get the energy flowing, the blood flowing, uh, it helps to keep you awake and alert. And it is, in every sense, just as powerful a meditation as sitting. But it is a little bit different. Because you're walking, you're moving, your eyes are open, there's a lot more 
sensory input present. So that's one difference. And so it makes it particularly well suited to, uh, to really cultivating mindful awareness because there's already a high level of alertness and stimulation of, uh, of your mind. But you still continue the practice of directing and sustaining your attention. So this is how you go about doing walking meditation. First of all, as much as possible, you remain fully present. Uh, if thoughts are taking place and there are uh, thoughts about the present, that's fine. You just go ahead and let those thoughts happen. Uh, but you don't let thoughts that are any, if, if there's a thought that has to do with something outside of the present, you don't let it carry you away. You stay in the present. So you, you find that you keep thinking about what's for supper tonight. Uh, you just come back to being here, feeling your body, feeling the air, uh, knowing that that thought is there. That is in the present. Being aware that you're having a thought about the future is being in the present. Forgetting the present because you're in the thought of the future, that's when we find that's taken place, and we've woken up to the present, because that's the only time we can be aware that we're lost in the future, is when we've come back to the present, then stay in the present. Okay? So that's number one. Now, the same way you use the sensations of the breath to help anchor you in the present, when you're walking, use the sensations in your feet. So that as you're walking, be aware of the sensations in the foot that you're moving. and direct your attention to the other foot, sustain the attention on the sensations there until that step is completed. And it's just, to begin with, this is just the anchor that if you find that your, your, your attention is starting to go too far afield, then use the sensations of walking uh, actually, it's a good idea to try to keep that awareness uh, present, of the awareness of sensations in your feet present all of the time. Even though you may, it's, it may not be the primary focus of your attention, it's your anchor. Whenever you're no longer aware of the sensations in your feet, then there's a good chance that you've lost present moment awareness and you know to come back. Okay? Now, uh, for the future, when you develop a little skill of just being in the present moment and using the sensations of your feet to anchor you there, we can make this practice a little more formal, a little more refined. So you can focus the attention more completely on the sensations in the soles of your feet and try to make one complete step at a time and have the awareness in one foot at a time. So you're aware of that step. And what normally when we take a step, the back foot starts to rise before the first, before the, the forefoot has been completely placed. So try to consciously make only one step without moving this foot. Then 
intentionally direct your attention to the sensations in the soul of this foot, and then observe the changing pattern of sensations associated with moving that foot and shifting your weight onto it. Now when that step's complete, direct your attention here. So you're directing and sustaining the attention while you walk. At the same time, you're hearing things and you're seeing things, but you're directing and sustaining the attention. You're doing the same practice you were sitting. This is good because now you're learning to stay focused while you're doing other things in the world and having other experiences at the same time. Um, I'll, I'll just tell you where this can go. It can become a very focused practice. Instead of step by step, you can divide each step into three parts, lifting, moving, placing. And you can come to know clearly and consistently what the sensations are in each of those three phases. You can even go beyond that. That's called three-part stepping. There's nine-part stepping, where the process of lifting your foot, you divide that into three parts, you know, so that there's there's a beginning and a middle and an ending stage of the lifting, and then for the moving, there's a raising and a moving and a lowering, and then for the placing, there's a beginning part, and a middle part, and an end part. So you can get really focused and really detailed in your walking meditation. Right, so that's one direction that you can go with it. I mean, for the time being, you stick with the simpler practices that I just described until you develop some facility and comfort with this. But you can turn it into uh, a very intensely focused uh, and, and highly mindfully aware practice going in that direction. There's a, another direction that you can go in with this, which is uh, a broader kind of awareness. Um, to begin with, in doing this, it's often good to experiment with walking at different paces and just noticing qualitatively how different it is walking. You, when you walk very slowly, how unnatural it is and how much deliberate concerted attention it takes to maintain your balance and things like that. And then you go a little bit faster and how wonderfully easy it becomes. It's automatic. Mm -hmm. When I'm doing this, I can't let my attention wander too far because if I do, I'm going to lose my balance. So I've really got to stay on top of it every moment. But if I speed up a little bit, I can totally forget I'm even walking. <laughs> um, So there's a, a very interesting experience of walking itself that you can explore. As you're walking, there are, there are so many things happening, and you can discover all of these things. You can start out in the beginning by just taking note of the, the strongest elements of your environment that present themselves. So you're doing some walking meditation, and something catches your eye. Just stop and go fully into visual awareness, you know. Allow yourself to examine what caught your awareness. And when you have that sense that you've satisfied the, the urge to explore that object, then you let it go. 
uh, you might take a moment before resuming your walking to just say, well, what else is there in my visual field? And just, you know, not, not necessarily looking around, although you could do that, but just allowing yourself to uh, fully be present with visual experience, that this is seeing. This is seeing, and then go back to the walking. The same thing, you hear a sound, you know, and stop and put your attention totally into the hearing, uh, noticing if it's a brief sound, noticing its reverberation in the mind, uh, and then notice whatever thoughts, other uh, sounds are there, and then go back to practicing sensations on your skin, things like that. When you get a little bit of this kind of experience of, of being able to easily and fully embrace sensory experience with you know, fully conscious awareness, you're developing a bit of flexibility okay, you can move and flow here. Then what you can do is just see how much, and this is, this is a fun one to do, and you can look forward to this, but you'll have to practice a bit before you really get the effect of it, is you say, okay, how much of this present moment can I actually take in of all the sensations in my body? Because in this step are not just the sensations of my soul, the soles of my foot, but the changing sensations of, of tension and the different muscles and tendons of my legs. The sensations produced in the movement and as my clothing move against my skin, there's so much just in the bodily sensation at the same time, visually, as I step, my eyes move and the contents of my visual field are so rich. And there's so much, if you're outside walking, there's so much sound. And then there's the feeling of the air on your skin. And then you might smell a, a, a flower or a tree or the exhaust of a diesel truck or something like that. And then there's your mind's reaction to all of this. That's, that's a really important part of the present moment. You know, how does your mind react to the smell of a diesel truck compared to the smell of a rose? Or uh, the feel of warm sunshine on your skin? Or different things like that. So it's a, it can turn into a process of not just being in the present moment, but investigating and discovering the richness and depth of the present moment. And really, really well worth that. But to start off with, let's just start off simply. Just try to be here now in the sense of not being in some place, some other time or place, okay? <laughs> just be here now. Use the sensations and the soles of your foot as your anchor to bring you back into the present and slowly, gradually see how much awareness you can bring in into that, the, the act of walking. Any questions about this practice? Do you think barefoot will help if you? Uh, it's, it's wonderful to do walking barefoot, but uh, you, you, do, you don't need to. Uh, but yes, yeah, you have a lot more sensitivity in, in your feet. Um, I would suggest that uh, initially, you, you, uh, at least you, you don't worry about that. You instead pick a nice, comfortable environment to walk in. If you're walking inside, like if you walk in here, then walk barefoot and you'll get all the benefits of that. You know, but if you're walking outside, then 
wear shoes, and you'll get different kinds of benefits. If you're walking outside, there'll be a lot more to experience uh, in terms of the environment. But certainly as you go along, you know, experiment with the difference between walking with shoes on and walking, walking without. Questions about walking like this? Everybody knows how to do it. You're looking forward to trying it. It's a little bit different, but it's really all the same too. It's applying the same principles, but in a different kind of activity. <laughs>